Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. It's difficult to overstate just how important the Supreme Court is. The nine unelected justices wield an incredible amount of power over our everyday lives. In these hashtag polarizing times, they've brought us landmark decisions that impact things like your student loan payments, what the college admission process could look like, and whether or not you have access to an abortion. Go back a bit further and you'll get same-sex marriage, Citizens United, and Brown versus the Board of Education. The Supreme Court has become the arbiter in the most contested and consequential civil rights issues in our history. And it's where many policies live or die. I'm Jonquilyn Hill, and today on The Weeds, what you need to know about the upcoming Supreme Court term. The justices will begin hearing cases on October 2nd, and the stakes are high for this term, too. So I talked to someone who can lay it all out for us. I'm Ian Milheiser. I'm a senior correspondent here at Fox. The Supreme Court is the big time, but most cases wind their way through lower courts before they get there. And one lower court in particular is getting a lot of attention. The Fifth Circuit. The Fifth Circuit is, I think, simultaneously like an encapsulation of the judiciary's id and a warning of what our future could be if like Donald Trump becomes president again. It is dominated not just by Trump appointees, but by really extremist judges. They declared an entire federal agency, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, unconstitutional. Now, if you do that, it means that the banks don't know how to comply with the law because the CFPB provides them with safe harbors where they say, if you do this, you cannot be sued for issuing your loans. And without those safe harbors, the banks say they're just going to have to stop issuing loans. And okay, like, so we just won't have a mortgage market, which means that the mortgage-related industries, home building and stuff like that, which make up 17% of the economy, will just cease to exist. They neutralized, essentially, the SEC's ability to enforce things. This is the court that tried to ban Mifepristone, the abortion drug. They have a decision that's probably going to be heard this term where they essentially eliminated the right to organize a political protest. And... One irony of this term is I think that the Fifth Circuit is has just so completely lost touch with reality that um, I think that this Supreme Court is likely to reverse them a lot this term. Why is the Fifth Circuit so extreme? I mean, you know, it's the, it's in the South. I think we can give listeners a little bit of that background, but It's very, very extreme. Yeah. So there's several reasons for this. One is, so the Fifth Circuit is Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi. And, you know, those are obviously three states that are very conservative. There is the historic legacy of something called the blue slip. The blue slip is a process that allows home state senators to essentially veto anyone who is nominated to a judgeship in their state 
It was eliminated under Trump for circuit court judges, for you know, court of appeals judges, including the Fifth Circuit. But a lot of the older Fifth Circuit judges were appointed during a time when Republican senators in places like Texas or Mississippi or Louisiana would just veto anyone that a Democrat would nominate and then push through these nominees who are, who are rather extreme. It's really interesting because the Supreme Court right now has this conservative supermajority. Right. And they're still saying no to the Fifth Circuit. Can you talk about the differences between the two courts? And also, why are we seeing that pushback? Because, you know, I think ideologically, a lot of what the Fifth Circuit is putting out, a majority of the justices agree with. I mean, some of this is just that there is some ideological diversity in the Republican Party. You know, there's a difference between Mitch McConnell and, say, Marjorie Taylor Greene. You know, there's a difference between the median Republican senator and the Freedom Caucus. The other thing going on here, and this is, I think, a natural phenomenon whenever the court changes. So when the court moves to the right— Lawyers are smart, so liberal lawyers stop bringing cases unless they're really sure they're going to win mm. because, you know, why would you give this Supreme Court an invitation to ruin things for your clients and for the issues you care about? Conservative lawyers start bringing more and more Hail Mary cases, and inevitably they're going to start overreaching. And so even under this Supreme Court, you know, in Amy Coney Barrett's first term, when the, when, which was the first term with the six to three Republican supermajority, there was a case asking the Supreme Court to repeal the Affordable Care Act in its entirety. It was a ludicrous legal theory. And on top of that, the court didn't even have jurisdiction over the case. And in a seven to two decision, the court agreed that, yes, we do not have jurisdiction over this case. We are not going to repeal the entire Affordable Care Act this many years after it was passed. There have been a number of immigration cases where the Supreme Court has had to reverse the Fifth Circuit. And some of this, again, is normal. Just, you know, lawyers will keep bringing more and more aggressive cases because they want to know where the where the limits are mm. you know, in the same way that like, you know, when you were when you and I were school children, we got a new teacher. We wanted to test the teacher's bounds. Yeah. It's yeah. like, is she going to like, I'm going to get up at my seat. Is she going to do anything? About yeah. It? Yeah. Maybe, it, maybe not. Let's see. Yeah. Let's see what she let's see what she does. If I if I if I talk to my neighbor, I yeah. mean, it's, it's the same sort of thing going on here. The only thing that I think is unusual is that the Fifth Circuit has been so solicitous towards these really extremist arguments. I mean, again, they they declared an entire fucking federal agency unconstitutional. <laughs> I think the normal process that would have happened by now where some of these conservative lawyers start to say, OK, like the Supreme Court has set some lines and now we're going to stay within them isn't happening right now because the Supreme Court only hears a few cases every year. To get the Supreme Court to hear your case, the, the court has what's called discretionary jurisdiction over most cases. So they just tell most of the lawyers who ask them to hear a case to go away. The Fifth Circuit has mandatory jurisdiction over the cases that arrive. Like, they have to hear the cases. They don't have a choice. And so often, if you're pushing for something really extreme and you think you can get it in front of a really extreme court of appeals, you can get it to that court. It's mandatory jurisdiction. You can get a ruling for them, and then you can just hope that the Supreme Court just isn't interested in the case and will let your victory stand. So, Ian, there have really been these high-profile decisions these past couple of years. I'm thinking of affirmative action and abortion, and I'm curious how this upcoming term 
compares to last year's term? Because it does seem, you know, like these cases are coming up and they're more niche. It's it's more the nitty gritty and not necessarily the things that we're talking about at our dining room tables every day. The last two terms very much felt like the justice had a checklist and there were a bunch of big, high profile liberal victories from the last 50 years or so that Republicans and the Federalist Society, the Republican Lawyers Organization, have wanted to get rid of for a very long time. They've held on to that grudge for a really long time. And they were just going through their checklist or like, what are the grudges that we have held for the last 50 years? Well, we've held a grudge about abortion, so let's overrule Roe v. Wade. We've held a grudge about affirmative action. Let's get rid of that. But they've now checked off so many boxes on their list of longstanding conservative grievances that it's possible they've run out. Mm. And one thing that might happen when they're no longer working through a predefined agenda is that the court's behavior might at least start to look more normal. Yeah, and it seems like some of the cases this term tackle these big fundamental questions about how we govern ourselves. And, you know, these are issues like the major questions doctrine, which, you know, if you're a Weeds listener or if you read Ian's pieces you have heard of, and that's, you know, the authority over policymaking and the power of the executive branch, which you just talked about. Can you get into why this is such a big deal in the long run? Because, you know, who's in power often changes. It shifts. But why does this matter beyond this moment we're in right now? So, what the Constitution does, pretty much the only thing that the Constitution is, that any Constitution does, is say who has the power to do certain things. There are some things that belong exclusively to the federal government. You know, the Constitution says that the federal government has exclusive authority over interstate commerce. So the federal government could place limits on, say, a person in Texas's ability to travel to New Mexico. The states can't do that. And there's some things that the states can do. So like, you know, the states, for example, ordinary like violent crimes, crimes that don't involve economics. If I were to just get up and punch you in the face, that would be a state offense. Like the federal government doesn't actually have authority to to prosecute most non-economic crimes. So there's there's some things that are allocated in that way. And then there's, you know, the question of within the federal government, there's some things that belong to the Congress. There's some things that belong to the executive branch and the presidency, and there's some things that belong to the judiciary. And the biggest and I think most consequential project that we have seen this court undertake is it is taking a lot of things that have historically belonged to the other two branches of government as said, no, it's ours now. So like, you know, take the student loans case from last term. Congress passed a law, it's called the HEROES Act, which says that the Secretary of Education shall have the power to waive or modify student loan obligations in the context of a national emergency, and COVID counts as a national emergency. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was, oh, yeah. And, and then the Secretary of Education, a member of the executive branch, decided, I am going to, you know, forgive a lot of student loans. And the Supreme Court struck that down, the major questions doctrine at least like what it claims to say, I mean, it's applied in a very haphazard way. But the idea behind the major questions doctrine is that Congress can't allow a member of the executive branch to decide 
really important policy questions. Like Congress has to write the statute describing in minute detail what it wants to do. It can't delegate that to a member of the executive branch. So what the court has done there is it has taken a power that used to belong to the legislative branch. The legislature used to have the power to delegate authority in this way. And it's taken a power that used to belong to the executive branch because Congress had passed a statute saying that the executive gets to make these decisions about student loans. And it said, no, 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 instead of you guys, the two elected branches, getting to make these decisions, we, the one unelected branch, are going to have the final word on that as well. And that's a huge deal because it fundamentally changes the structure of our government. You're taking power away from democratically elected officials, you're taking power away from experts, and you're giving it to judges who are not elected and who often don't know what they're talking about. All right. So that's our look back. After the break, we'll dive into some of the upcoming cases on the Supreme Court's docket. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Okay, we're back, and it's time to dig into the nitty-gritty of some of the cases on the upcoming Supreme Court docket. So we should say why we began this episode talking about a different court. The Fifth Circuit issued a decision in a case that, as you wrote, would have, quote, calamitous results if not reversed by the Supreme Court this term. Ian, what is going on with the CFPB versus the Community Financial Services Association? Go ahead and lay that case out for us. So this is the case where the Fifth Circuit struck down the CFPB. The CFPB was created in 2010 in response to the financial crisis. It used to be there were lots of different agencies that regulated the banking industry, and, like, often they would compete with each other, like, often had tricks where they could get out of regulation because they could, like, play the agencies off of each other. And, like, that wasn't a good situation. 
to fix that problem, Congress took a bunch of existing power that historically had been housed in many agencies and said, we're going to create one agency, CFPB, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. It is going to deal with consumer lending and, you know, related things, credit cards and things like that. And it's going to have all this authority that had been strewn about different parts of the federal government. We're going to concentrate it in that agency. That power includes both the power to regulate the banks, but also the power to do things like create safe harbors. So the safe harbors tell them like, okay, you have to make these disclosures, you have to conduct your business in this sort of way, and so long as you comply with these rules, we're going to let your business continue to function so that you can go ahead and make these loans. And these loans, I mean, the mortgage industry is really important to the U.S. economy. Yeah, I learned that in 2008, believe it or not. In fact, it's very important to the global economy. In 2008, one reason why there was such an extraordinary policy response to the mortgage crisis is because it threatened to take down the whole world economy with it if the U.S. housing market had collapsed. So... The Fifth Circuit comes along. They declare this whole agency unconstitutional, which means no more safe harbors, which means that the banks are just going to have to stop making loans for a while, at least until someone comes along and and tells them how they can safely make those loans in a way that's not going to lead to catastrophic consequences for them. That would trigger a second Great Depression if that happened. And that's actually not even the most radical thing about the Fifth Circuit's legal theory. The actual funding mechanism for the CFPB is a little unusual. So there's many agencies where Congress just has an annual appropriations process. Here's your budget for a year, the Congress decides, and then the next year they do it again. The CFPB isn't funded that way. The way the CFPB is funded is that the Federal Reserve already has its own income stream. Mm -hmm. The CFPB may request up to 12% of that income stream, and it's an amount that is capped. It rises with inflation every year. All of this is legal. All all that the Constitution says is that before any money can be appropriated, Congress has to pass a law, and Congress passed a law here, so that's enough. The Fifth Circuit said, no, actually, that's not enough. The Fifth Circuit's primary complaint is it claimed that it violated a rule against perpetual funding, meaning that you 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 have to have some sort of sunset or some sort of annual appropriations process. You can't just say this funding stays in place until Congress decides to get rid of it. If you take that argument seriously, about two-thirds of the federal government is unconstitutional. <laughs> Like, oh, no. Yeah. Social Security has a perpetual funding stream. Oh, no. Medicare has a perpetual funding stream. Medicaid has a perpetual funding stream. It's just not a workable theory. Yeah. Let's move on to another major case, and that's Alexander versus the South Carolina State Conference of the NAACP. This one may feel like deja vu to a lot of Weeds listeners. No Beyonce. Uh, <laughs> tell us what's at stake. Well, let me talk about the deja vu first. Yes, let's get into it. Yeah. So last term, there was a case called Allen v. Milligan, which was a racial gerrymander in the state of Alabama. Alabama, like, I think a little more than a quarter of the population is black, but only 14 percent of the congressional representation went to black people. And a... Lower federal court looked at that and said, no, you you need a second majority black district. These congressional maps that you've drawn are a racial gerrymander. You know, they were drawn in a way that 
unfairly diminishes the voting power of black people. And that went up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court surprised pretty much everyone by saying, yeah, we agree there needs to be a second black district in Alabama. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because I think, you know, those of us who watched the court were a little shooketh by that. That was very unexpected. I was more than a little shooketh by this. (laughs) Uh, And in a good way. I I mean, like, the the most important thing to understand about Allen v. Milligan is it was just a straightforward application of longstanding law. Like, if you were a lower court judge, there should be nothing controversial about what would happen in Allen v. Milligan. The Allen case turned on a particular provision of the Voting Rights Act called the Results Test, Mm which says that it isn't just illegal to, like, pass a law that intentionally discriminates on the basis of race. It's also illegal to pass an election law that results in voters of a particular race having less voting power than they should. So even if you can't prove intent, if you can show the effect, you can still win your lawsuit. Chief Justice Roberts, when he was a young lawyer in the Reagan Justice Department, was part of a conservative faction that tried to get Ronald Reagan to veto the bill that created the results test. So you had this legacy of the court attacking the voting rights, attacking the Voting Rights Act. You had a chief justice who had carried a grudge against this particular provision of the Voting Rights Act for basically his entire career. And then this Allen case reaches the Supreme Court, and not only did they decide to stick with longstanding law, but John Roberts wrote the opinion. Mm. And so this brings us back to the South Carolina case, the, the, the Alexander v. South Carolina State Conference of the NAACP. So this is another racial gerrymandering case. I mean, legally, it's a bit distinct. It's a constitutional case, not a Voting Rights Act case. But like, factually, it's extremely similar. Mm. So so, so the allegation here is that in South Carolina, the first district, which is now represented by Nancy Mace, a Republican, had become competitive. In fact, it briefly had a Democrat, um, elected a Democrat for two years. And the Republican state legislature wanted to make it a Republican district again. And so the way that they accomplished it is like when the redistricting process came around, you know, all districts have to have roughly equal populations. So they they figured out which counties and like which group of people they wanted in there. And then they still had to add a few more people in to top it off. Mm -hmm. And so they looked at Charleston County, South Carolina, which is about 25 percent black and basically drew the maps to exclude as many black people as possible from Charleston County, like to just top the district off with white people. The idea was that they had a district that could have been competitive, and they know that race is a really good proxy, especially in South Carolina, for which party you support. You you know, white people in South Carolina tend to vote for Republicans. Black people in South Carolina tend to vote for Democrats. And so if they kept all the black people out and if they packed in as many white people as they possibly could, those would be Republican voters and they were confident this would give them a Republican district. So this case is interesting for two reasons. I mean, one is is just going to be an interesting window into whether the shift that we saw in that Alabama case, the Allen v. Milligan case, whether it's a one-off or whether it's something real. Is the court actually backing away from its crusade against voting rights or you know, was this just a one-off and they're just going to go back to letting Republicans do whatever they want to gerrymander these maps? The other interesting thing here is like if you read South Carolina's brief, their argument is essentially, no, we didn't do this because of racism. We did it because we hate Democrats. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like 
does that not fall under the intent situation? Like, Well, so here's the thing. There's two competing lines of precedent. So there is a case called Rucho. And what the Supreme Court said in Rucho is essentially federal courts have to get out of the business of policing partisan gerrymandering. Mm -hmm. So, like, if you accuse a state of drawing lines for partisan reasons, the federal court just has to dismiss the case. Okay. And states with gerrymandered maps love this because they can draw, you know, a map with a gerrymander, potentially a racial gerrymander, and then they can say, oh, no, we just did this for partisan reasons, so you're not allowed to do anything to us, ha, ha, ha. You then have another set of cases which say, okay, the federal court can't do anything about partisan gerrymanders, but they are allowed to intervene to block racial gerrymanders. Mm -hmm. And in a case called Cooper, the Supreme Court said specifically that it is still illegal to use race as a proxy for something else. So even if you aren't motivated by white supremacy, like even if you have no beef against like Clarence Thomas or Tim Scott or, you know, a, a black person who does not vote for Democrats, you still can't say, well, we are going to use the color of a person's skin to identify who the Republicans are and who the Democrats are and then exclude the people who have the skin color that aligns with the party that we don't like. That is not allowed. And this South Carolina case test whether the Supreme Court really meant what it meant, what it said in Cooper. That's so interesting because I feel like, I mean, you could gerrymander for any reason. Like, I could probably, like, go into a district and be like, all right, all the Beyonce fans over here, all the Taylor right. Swift fans over here, we're going to draw the— Like, it gets to the point where it's like, isn't it all kind of bad? This is why we can't have nice It is not hard to come up with some trait that is a proxy for partisan preferences. You know, you could, you know, imagine a state like requiring every voter to take a test on their knowledge of country music. Like, like I'm telling you right now, I'm not going to be in that voting district unless it's like Casey Musgraves. That's all you're getting from me. Yeah, no, I, yeah, be, be, beyond like a handful of chick songs, I am going to fail that test and not get to vote. <laughs> um, so, like, you know, the reason why that would be significant is because, you know, Country music fans are more likely to be Republican. And so you can use that as a proxy. You know, essentially the question that this South Carolina case tees up is whether you can use race as a proxy. You know, the answer should be no. Cooper said it said it is no. The lower court said it is no. And I'm hoping what they do in the South Carolina case is that they also say we're going to keep the law the same and say that you can't use race as a proxy in order to punish one party or another. I want to get into the last case you wanted to talk about, and that's the United States versus Rahimi. What's up with that? The story of this case is why originalism failed. So originalism is a theory, you know, that was popularized by some very conservative judges like Justice Scalia. The idea is that the only legitimate way to interpret the Constitution is by going back to when the document was written or when it was ratified and trying to figure out how people would have understood it at that time. And, and the, the belief is that there, there's no other legitimate way to read the Constitution. In a case called Bruin from a little, little more than a year ago, the Supreme Court essentially tried to take this originalist insight that the only legitimate way to read the Constitution is to try to figure out what it meant in— 1789 or whatever, and 
imported that into the Second Amendment. It said if you want to determine whether or not a gun law is legal, the question you have to ask is whether it fits in our tradition of gun regulation. And by tradition of gun regulation, they meant that, like, you have to look at laws from, like, 150 or 200 years ago and see if that was actually something that that was done. And they also said that if there was a social problem that existed at the framing and the framers did not regulate it the way that we regulate it now, that that's really strong evidence that the way that we regulate it now is not acceptable. But like with respect to guns, I think you know, the issue of technology is much starker. Like to give you just one example, the machine gun was invented in 1884. That's many years after the framing, many years after, you know, the Reconstruction Amendments, which some justices have suggested, like, maybe you should look at the Reconstruction Era, not the framing era. It's still after that. So does that mean that we can't ban machine guns just because this technology didn't exist back then? Or, like, to take the actual issue in the Rahimi case, again, this Rahimi case is about whether or not people who have been determined to be a violent threat to their spouses, their romantic partners, their romantic partners' children, whether they have a right to own a gun. Well, I can tell you at the framing, domestic violence certainly existed. There were not gun bans for domestic abuse. And in fact, until 1871, it was legal to beat your spouse in all states. Oh, my God. Yeah. In 1871, Alabama, of all states, the Alabama Supreme Court declared that it is assault for a husband to beat their wife or for a wife to beat their husband. And the worst thing about Rahimi is that if you take Bruin seriously, like with its focused on tradition and whether or not these laws existed in the past, I'm not sure the Fifth Circuit was wrong. If, in fact, the rule is you can't have gun laws if they aren't similar to the ones that existed in 1789, then you can't disarm domestic abusers. Mm. I think a sensible person would look at that and would say, oh, God, if, if Bruin leads to this conclusion, then Bruin must be wrong. I don't think the Supreme Court's likely to overrule Bruin, so the question is whether or not they create some kind of carve-out for for laws like this. So those are some of the major cases on the docket this term. After the break, we'll talk about what all of this means for the future of democracy. So, Ian, you used to be at a 13 when it came to panic over the Supreme Court, and now you're just at a 9. Just a 9 out of 10. (laughs) I, I, you know, perfectly calm, no anxiety whatsoever. (laughs) What changed? The biggest thing that changed, honestly, was that Allen decision that Mm. we were describing. Voting rights are an issue of transcendent importance. No matter how bad the Supreme Court gets, as long as we have voting rights, we can keep electing people who will appoint better justices until the problem is fixed. So when the Supreme Court started to suggest that maybe there's some support for voting rights, you know, that meant that I had to dial back my alarm just a little bit because that that was a significant concession. There's also a case last term called uh, Moore v. Harper that would have done tremendous violence to U.S. democracy. And the court decided, in fact, not to do tremendous Mm. violence to U.S. democracy. So good for them. Like these two cases have left me feeling better. 
And when I look at the docket this term, I mean, again, it's, you know, the CFPB case. There's a case about whether or not the SEC, which is an agency that's been around since the Roosevelt administration, is allowed to function. There's the Mifi Pristone case that they're almost certainly going to have to decide about whether or not courts can just ban drugs. Yeah. There is the McKesson case they're probably going to have to hear this term, where the Fifth Circuit said that if you organize a protest— and someone who attends that protest does something illegal, you, the organizer, can be sued for it. Yeah, that's really chilling. That's really chilling on the First Amendment. There is a case called Net Choice, where the Fifth Circuit essentially allowed the state of Texas to seize control of content moderation at places like YouTube and Facebook and Twitter. And then there's this Rahimi case that we already discussed. And I disagree with Amy Coney Barrett on a lot of things, but, like, I don't think that when confronted with a case where the banking industry comes to her and says, look, if you do this, it's going to shut down 17% of the U.S. economy and cause a Great Depression. So this clause of the Constitution that the Fifth Circuit relied on, no court in American history has ever struck a law down ever under this clause mm. before the Fifth Circuit did it in this one case. Like, I, I just don't—I I think that someone like Barrett is going to look at a case like that and say, yeah, that th- that goes too far. Yeah. One question that I've been wondering about, like, is there any recourse with Supreme Court decisions? Like, you know, these are lifetime appointments. And is is there a way to challenge a ruling or reverse it? Like, does anything— matter when the court is this powerful? So, I mean, the short answer to that question is if you've got five votes on the Supreme Court, you can do literally anything. I mean, there are some formal checks on the Supreme Court, but they have almost never been invoked. Court decisions are handed down by the courts. They are enforced by the executive. So, like, if a federal court orders me to pay you money or something and I refuse to do it, the way that that will be enforced is that the U.S. Marshals will show up on my doorstep and force me to do it. And the U.S. Marshals are part of the executive branch. So, in theory, if the court did something truly horrific, the president of the United States could order the U.S. Marshals not to enforce that decision. Something like that, I only know of two historical precedents for for it. One was the Dred Scott decision. If when you're talking about the level of bad things have to get to, that's the level of bad. Like, the Dred Scott decision said that slavery was protected in the territories. President Lincoln signed legislation anyway, banning slavery in the territories. The Dred Scott decision said that black people could not be U.S. citizens. The Lincoln State Department issued passports to black people. So, like, Lincoln just— Set, you know, basically looked at the Supreme Court and gave them both middle fingers <laughs> because of the Dred Scott decision. And I, I think we're all glad that he did that. The only other historical example I'm familiar with is not a good example because it didn't actually happen. But there was a case during the Franklin Roosevelt administration where there were a bunch of contracts. I mean, the, the mechanism is very complicated, but essentially a bunch of people who had taken out loans were going to have to pay a 67% premium on that. So imagine for every dollar that you borrowed, you had to pay back a dollar and 67 cents. Oh my goodness. 
Congress passed a law saying, no, you only have to pay back $1 on your $1. But like there was a question of whether that law was constitutional. Now, the Supreme Court did the right thing. They they they, they did not say that people had to pay a 67% premium. But Franklin Roosevelt had written a speech that he would have delivered where he would have essentially said, this decision by the Supreme Court is so ruinous that we will defy it. And so that is an option. It is not an option that's been used very often. So like barring something like that, that option is probably not on the table. You know, the other radical solution is court packing. So the Constitution doesn't say how many justices sit on the Supreme Court. That's set by an act of Congress. It's been as low as five in the past. It's been as high as 10 in the past. So conceivably, if Congress got really, really upset with the Supreme Court, um, they could just add, you know, there's actually a bill in Congress that would up the number to 13. President Biden would get to a point, would get to fill the four vacancies, and then we'd have a seven to six Democratic court instead of a six to three Republican Supreme Court. And then there's the third option, which is to follow the playbook used by the victors. So, like, why was Roe v. Wade overruled? Republicans just held a grudge against Roe v. Wade for a really long time. And they campaigned on, we're going to appoint justices who will overrule Roe v. Wade. And then they did it. And this is why I assign so much importance to to this Allen v. Milligan decision. So long as voting rights are intact, I mean, it, it may take a while. But if Democrats hold on to their grudge against the Dobbs decision, the decision overruling Roe v. Wade, and they keep electing Democrats, eventually, you know, enough justices will leave the court, will be replaced by ones who thinks that Dobbs was wrongly decided, and we will get Roe v. Wade back. Or maybe we'll get something stronger than Roe v. Wade back. Yeah, I'm curious because there's a supermajority, and it seems like, you know, we see pendulum swing. Yeah. Um, and maybe it's naive on my part. The news cycle has proven me wrong so many times. But to me, it seems inevitable that at some point in my lifetime, we're going to see the pendulum swing the other way because, like you said, like people are going to come campaign on Dobbs like they campaigned on Roe. And it, it's it's the pendulum swings. I think of, you know, um, the fact that you don't need two-thirds of the Senate to approve judges. Like, that was an Obama era decision because it felt impossible to get any of his court picks through. And then, you know, it kind of bit Democrats in the butt when Trump was elected. Like, that's just the pendulum swings. And I think for people who are left-leaning, that eventual pendulum swing does not seem like a bad thing. But I do wonder what this supermajority does for the state of our democracy. Yeah. A lot. I mean, we will know more at the end of this term. I'm, you know, I'm watching this this Alexander case, the one, the voting rights case out of South Carolina, very closely for that answer. The Alabama case, the Allen v. Milligan case, is actually in front of the Supreme Court again. So Alabama was ordered to draw a second black district. It did not comply with the court order. What happened the first time around in the in the Allen v. Milligan case is that. The plaintiffs presented a lot of evidence showing that there was a racial gerrymander. One piece of evidence they showed was essentially that the state had cracked the black belt, which actually isn't named because of the skin color of the residents. It's because of the color of the soil. Yeah, it's super, super fertile soil there. It's super fertile soil. But because of the history of slavery and and agricultural labor, there were a lot of black people living in in the black belt. Yeah, my family's from the black belt. Yeah. 
And so the allegation in the Allegan v. Milligan case was that black people in the black belt were cracked in order to create a gerrymander. So what Alabama did the second time around is after they were ordered to draw a second black district, they didn't do that. Instead, they packed the black the black belt. Like they kept the black belt together and just gerrymandered the state in a different way. And now they're in the Supreme Court saying like, Hey, we 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 no longer we're no longer cracking the black belt. Problem solved. <laughs> it's like no, baby, that's still gerrymandering. Yeah. It's all you still did it. You still did the thing. Yeah, it's it's like if I break into your house by picking your lock, and then I get arrested, and I go to jail, and I come back, and then I break your window and break into your house again. It's not a defense. Yeah, that yeah, I did it a different like, way. <laughs> you still did it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like it's it's still the same crime. Yeah, and you know, so similarly here, like. I hope the Supreme Court isn't going to buy this. You know, there's also Kavanaugh wrote a concurring opinion in the Allen v. Milligan case where he suggests there's a constitutional argument he might be open to. <sighs> I hope he proves to be less open to that because, like, I think it would be a serious blow to the court's credibility if it orders the state of Alabama to to do anything. You know, if, if it argues the governor to jump, it doesn't really matter what they order the state to do. The state comes up with some bullshit way to say, no, we don't have to do that. And the Supreme Court says, OK, you're right. We're not going to make you <laughs> comply with our order. Like, like I, I hope that Brett Kavanaugh has enough sense to know that that's not something he should do. But the answer is I'm, I'm going to be watching the court very closely to see, you know, what they do in the Voting Rights Act case. Because, like, the main question I'm asking is, is this a problem we can solve through organizing? You know, is this a problem we can solve through democracy? As you said, the pendulum can swing really fast. Clarence Thomas is 75 years old. Samuel Alito is 73 years old. So there's a real chance that both of them could have to leave the court in Joe Biden's second term, you know, mm, assuming yeah. that he gets a second term. Three or four years from now, we could have a Democratic majority on, on the Supreme Court. And, you know, the likelihood that they're both going to stick around through another, you know, if there's if there's a third term of a Democratic presidency, it gets even smaller. I don't want to be ghoulish about it, but like the math here is that you have these two justices in their 70s. They're going to have to leave the court at some point. And if they are replaced by Democrats, then you have a completely different world. Ian Milheiser, thank you so much for joining us on The Weeds again. Thank you. That's all for us today. Thank you to Ian Milheiser for joining us. To read more from Ian on the upcoming Supreme Court term, head over to Vox.com. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Krishna Ayala engineered this episode. Serena Solon fact-checked it. Our editorial director is A.M. Hall. And I'm your host, John Pullen Hill. This podcast is part of Vox, which doesn't have a paywall. Help us keep it that way by going to vox.com give. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.